0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary, and I wanted to remind you all that we are sponsored by Corporate Compliance Insights, which is a fantastic free resource to get your news about compliance updates, enforcement actions, opinions, and I'm very pleased to share that I have recently become a regular columnist on CCI, so check out Living Your Best Compliance Life for my monthly opinions on all things happening in compliance on the softer side, from being a compliance practitioner and advancing yourself, to programmatic tips to level up your compliance program, commentary on enforcement actions and cases and settlements and so on. Please join me there. In the meantime, though, I'm very pleased to focus on today's episode guest, which is Deborah Barrett. Please tell us about yourself, Deb. Thanks, Mary.
1: First off, I just wanted to say that I'm excited to participate in the Great Women in Compliance podcast. I'm a podcast junkie and (laughs) I really enjoy this one. So but in terms of my background, I started out my career working in program management roles in the oil and gas industry. Then I spent 13 years in telecom working for two of the top wireless operators in the US. And there I large network deployment projects, which were really interesting and fast-paced. And then for the last 14 and a half years, I've been with a technology company in San Diego called Qualcomm. Qualcomm's a leader in 5G technologies and development of semiconductors that enable smartphones. That's our the biggest part of our business. But we're also now developing products for IoT, auto, digital healthcare, and wireless uh, connectivity industries. So Again, pretty broad range of industries that we touch. I have managed a wide range of functions. Again, program management, you're like a catch-all. But oddly enough, regulatory compliance was always a component of my responsibilities in every role and all the industries that I've been in. So it's just a calling, I think.
0: That's interesting. I didn't know that you and I had a little bit of overlap with our experience. I've previously run compliance programs for a telecommunications company and a power generation company. So similar spaces. Yes, yes. Awesome. Everybody
1: needs regulatory compliance (laughs) support in those
0: industries. I'm glad you mentioned your background at Qualcomm because I have a question for you about that. And Qualcomm is such an interesting company to me from a compliance perspective because it was subject to issues in two areas that I've practiced in, antitrust and anti-corruption. And it stood out to me because of that. And there's only one other company off the top of my head that I can think of that's had that sort of dual enforcement activity and the freight forwarding company is the other one that I think of. I'm sure there are more. So, dear listener, if you've got some other examples, feel free to, to send those through. But today we have the pleasure of talking to someone from Qualcomm. So, acknowledging that antitrust falls under a different department at your company, could you share with us what it has been like working for a company that's generally been subject to a fair amount of regulatory scrutiny and what the silver lining has been for a compliance professional in such a situation?
1: Great question. As any company that rises to the status of being an industry leader, it can also become a target for competitors Mm. and regulators. Success is a blessing and a curse. My employer has had its fair share of regulatory challenges. I was involved in the company's response to a six-year SEC investigation regarding FCPA compliance. This is actually how I got my start in corporate compliance. At Qualcomm over 10 years ago. So, I do view this business challenge as the catalyst for my pursuit of a career in leading ethics and compliance at Qualcomm. When I think back, the experience was like trying to build or optimize a car while driving 100 miles per hour. It was exhausting, stressful, but it was the ultimate program management challenge and I thrive on that kind of adversity. We were given very tight deadlines to make program improvements that had to be implemented across the mm-hmm. entire company. As you can imagine, process improvement initiatives often take a long time to design and implement. Many of our near-term changes that we made were like on an interim basis and very manual, why we mm-hmm. tried to work through more systematic and scalable processes and controls. I assume that's how most companies have to mm-hmm. respond to that kind of pressure and deadlines, but we had to identify the gate for each transaction that could have compliance implications. And this was really like trying to solve a puzzle. But On the positive side, it put me in contact with experts throughout the organization that could provide input or context for the various business operations that we were trying to understand. And many of these individuals that supported us in addressing the remedial actions are still like our go-to subject matter experts today. We built good relationships. We were able to meet the deadlines that were imposed while we actually worked on the long-term solutions. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, we have a lot of tech resources at our company. So we did have a lot of support with automating and systemizing the things that we were trying to do.
0: Cool. Thank you for sharing that. And obviously relatable for me, my company had an FCPA settlement with the ANECC in April of 2019, and we were assigned a corporate monitorship as well. So certainly familiar with the pressures and the deadlines and from a career perspective, I think it's, for me at least, a real positive, that silver lining of being able to learn from the, some of those subject matter experts, including our monitor, like having a like a, an additional mentor around. And I feel like as well, it's easier to motivate your business stakeholders when you've been in trouble. When it's a company that hasn't been in trouble, I find it so much harder to get people to relate to the need for compliance controls and things. So yes. that's some of the positives that that I've seen in a similar situation to you.
1: And one difference, Mary, we mm. did not have a monitor, mm. I guess, The company considers that to be a very good thing, but we still had a lot of outside counsel support reviewing each of the remedial actions that we were working on and making sure that it addressed the concern that was raised. But we had a two-year probationary period, so during that time, we were just trying to make sure we didn't have any mistakes while Mm -hmm. we were also trying to implement all of these changes. But like I said, the relationships we made were... Really critical to the long term success of the program.
0: So great. Thank you for giving a bit of perspective to some of our listeners who do come from the position where they haven't yet been in trouble and get to to see what it was like on the other side. Thanks for sharing that. I think experiencing investigations and settlements really leads to stronger compliance programs. And I think it was Alan Hunt who said, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but essentially every awesome and strong compliance program has arisen from the ashes of a compliance disaster, essentially. And it's such a good point, right? Because how many companies that have never been in trouble are like, let's have the best compliance program ever. I'm sure there's probably one or two little halo executive teams that are doing that, but it seems to be really the case that the more severe and the more you're in trouble, the more seriously non-compliance people take having a good strong compliance function. What's something that you've worked on that you think Qualcomm is particularly strong at as part of its compliance program that you can share as a best practice model for others? Sure.
1: You often hear compliance professionals use the expression never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm. That's a pretty common one. Along that line, I recognize most companies are facing and prioritizing a multitude of risks at all times, not just compliance risks. But a regulatory investigation certainly forces compliance to become a huge focus and a priority for the company. As a compliance professional, I think you have to treat the crisis like an opportunity and Leverage it to build support, resources, and funding for your program while you can. Compliance is a non-revenue generating function, Mm -hmm. but an investigation brings the business benefit of an effective compliance program and to clear focus for most leaders and decision makers. So again, you want to take advantage of the time when there's a lot of concern or fear about the company's reputation. And these are times to try to get what you need to support your program. During, during and right after our settlement, my employers allowed us to add human resources to our organization, as well as programmatic resources like technical solutions and automation. And it also also forced the issue of collaboration with other compliance and assurance functions um, like accounting, internal Mm -hmm. audit. HR and IT because we needed all of those groups to provide input and support for the program. We still have a relatively small team that administers our centralized ethics and compliance program. We support a workforce of over 45,000 employees and business operations in 170 offices in 38 countries. So again, pretty expansive business operations, a very small team. So going back to automation and systemization, those those were really important aspects of our journey. And as I mentioned, we do have a lot of technical expertise internally. So we've done Mm. a pretty good job in that area of automating manual processes, as well as our monitoring scripts, which I think Mm. is Difficult for compliance organizations that don't have that kind of tech support. Mm. We engineers writing algorithms for us to help us automatically look at the things that we're trying to monitor. Whereas Mm. when the early stage of the program, we were doing all of that manually. So if you Mm. There was just no way to get through all of the transactions in a period that you needed to review most of your time, pulling the data and trying to clean it up just so that it could be analyzed. But we did have a lot of support in that area, so I feel very fortunate. We also augment our compliance team and extend our reach into the regions through our regional compliance committees and our ethics liaisons. So we do consider these groups integral to the program. They have helped us to customize the program for local conditions, which at the start we were not doing very well. And they also are able to give us more timely insights into emerging risks because they're there. We're not waiting for Mm -hmm. to see something in the press or they can tell Mm -hmm. us when things are bubbling up. And then the last element that I wanted to mention is just our recognition program. Mm -hmm. We refer to it as the Lead the Way program. I did not design it. I Mm -hmm. do not have any background in marketing or sales or anything like that, but you can't have a rule for everything. So we've spent a lot of time and brain share on finding ways to recognize employees that put the company's values into action and to help us foster a culture of integrity. We have a couple of thousand employees now that are part of this group, and they serve as our compliance community, and Mm -hmm. they do help us to amplify the importance of working together to build a culture of integrity, given that we are operating globally and there are business customs and cultural norms that can impact compliance. So having folks in this group that work across the globe, it's just been very helpful to understand those things that might become an issue for the company, but are very common practices in country.
0: So I love the branding of it, lead the way. Would you say that it's akin to a compliance ambassador or compliance champion initiative, or is there another element in terms of how you use it? So there are three levels. Mm -hmm. There's the
1: initial level, which are the employees that do the right thing. Then we have trailblazers, which are employees that show others how to do the right thing. And then we have our champions who we actually recognize every year during compliance week. So we have a production and we haven't been able to bring them on stage, but when we had Mm -hmm. an in-person event, we used to bring them up. And these are really people that are like, part of our team. We Mm. just interact with them daily. They are really leaders in the area of ethics. And no matter what their role is in the company or what function or business unit they're in, they're just people support the program, evangelize the program, make sure that it's a priority for their own teams. So yes, we do have a couple of different levels. And like in the employee directory, we have little, like if you were on Facebook or some social media platform, we have little badges to what level you've reached. So it's right under your picture. And so that's, we don't have a big budget. It's actually a very small budget. So we have to do things like that to make sure that it actually feels like an important piece of recognition. So, but yeah, the program's been really helpful to just, helping us foster the culture that we want. It's not obvious. And we have a lot of new employees that were onboarded remotely. Again, we want people that interact with those new employees that can help to drive the message.
0: Fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing some more details on that. And I love the fact that you've really worked on automation. I think that is a huge part of Compliance 2.0 and leveling up on that, I'm sure, is compliance 3.0. And you're very fortunate that you have a lot of those resources already internal into hand. But, dear listener, for those of you who don't work for a tech company, Think about whether there is in fact someone with that type of skill set in your IT department to open the discussions, let them tell you what they can do after you've shared some of your processes and procedures and central repository documentation with them. And also potentially think about whether it's worth spending some money on that if it's not a core part of your business to have the engineers, but would be worth that type of consultancy to help you build something. I think that would be something worth thinking about. Absolutely. Deb, I wanted to touch on another point that you mentioned in passing, which is the fact that we aren't revenue generators in compliance. And I think that's a real area of opportunity that still remains open for us. And in my typical either New Zealand or maybe Mary direct communication style, one of the, I think, a way in which I would seek to address this when I have appropriate levels of power and authority within a compliance function would be, I think, To go a step further than those who have thought about branding beyond the compliance department, and of course, ethics and compliance is pretty common nowadays and has been for many years. In the last several years, we've seen some companies move to integrity offices and integrity departments. I would arguably think it might be worth going one step further and seeing whether there was scope to call my department the reputation and revenue protection or preservation department and really just sell that as being, this is our ROI. It is in our name. I don't have to persuade you every day in terms of the advice I'm giving or whatever, because it's ingrained in our identity.
1: Exactly. Mary, I love how you think. And I think the fact that you're direct about it (laughs) is wonderful, because sometimes you're dealing with leaders that just unless you're in a sales or BD role, it's Mm. just you're a cost center. And obviously, like you, I do believe that we're here to protect the company's reputation, revenue, and its employees. Mm. Many regulations have personal liability so it's Mm. not just for the company it's Mm. for the individual employees so Mm. I completely agree with you but we'll be honest that I have not broached that subject (laughs) with my own company but if you're successful (laughs) and you could let me know I would that might give me some confidence too. (laughs)
0: don't worry folks I'll go first (laughs) exactly yeah Interestingly, a while back when I was putting together the proposal for my current team and and title being head of culture of integrity and really dedicating some of my team's resource and time to promoting and measuring a culture of integrity. I thought, wouldn't it be cool if other companies thought that would be a good thing to do as well? Because what I'd realized is that there was a survey done by CEB, which is now Gartner, and the number one priority in this 2016 survey, I think it was, for compliance departments was to establish a culture of integrity or maintain, build, and so on. But what I quickly realized, anecdotally at least, was that while that was a priority, Very few compliance functions actually dedicated any meaningful culture of integrity initiatives as part of their compliance programs. And interestingly, Matt Kelly reached out to me within the last few days and said, hey, I'm noticing like a spate of culture of integrity positions and in compliance now. Maybe once I have the courage to raise this, Deb, it could open the floodgates <laughs> and I will notify you accordingly uh, yes. there is success on this at the point at which I choose to be brave. and make- <laughs> I love it. I hope you're successful because
1: I think 10 years ago, it was all about the rules and compliance mm-hmm. today. You can't have a rule for everything. Mm-hmm. Business is so complex. You really mm-hmm. just need employees to understand what the company's values are and to operate with integrity in everything that they do. Or if there's mm-hmm. a gray area, know who to reach out to. Mm-hmm. That's the goal at this point. But if you just focus on the rules, you pretty much lose everybody. It's Yeah, it has to be about culture. But I am encouraged to hear that it's starting to be branded that way because I think compliance organizations are spending more and more time in that area. Agreed,
0: agreed. One thing that is on my mind as I I think about coming out of a monitorship, and as you, you point out, when you're experiencing regulator scrutiny, you're in, in a position to really prioritize compliance. And what that means is that people are hearing about compliance all the time. So what I'm interested in is the issue of compliance fatigue. What happens when you get to the point where the drip of compliance messaging is enough for people and they feel like, ugh. Oh, Give me a break from this. Haven't we talked about it enough or I'm already good with this now. How did you avoid or address compliance fatigue when coming out of your FCPA settlement?
1: Yeah, I have to say, Mary, I'm not sure we did a good job in this area. It was a pretty chaotic time. And there Mm -hmm. were a lot of things that were mandatory. I don't know that we were as sensitive to compliance fatigue. Again, it was 10 years ago. We basically got people on board just by talking about how much we spent to cooperate in the investigation, mm-hmm. how many of our employees were deposed by the government, mm. a pretty scary experience. Yes. And so we tried to use kind of the reality of the investigation and the desire for the company to not experience something like that again, just mm. to say, hey, you have to go through this training. You have to understand the basics. Mm. Or a misstep. That was a huge disruption to our business, huge risk to our reputation. And I would not say that we did a great job of being sensitive to compliance fatigue, but I think once we got out from under and we started thinking more along the lines of engagement,
0: employee engagement, we did start addressing that, but it was probably Mm. a couple of years in all honesty. It was so far back, as you point out, and armed with the benefit of hindsight, there are so many things that we potentially yes. could do differently. And I hope I'm not putting you on the spot too much here, but and so no worries if there isn't anything that comes to mind. But if you, if you were faced with combating compliance fatigue in more recent times, is there anything that you would have done differently or that you would like to implement that you think would be effective for those listening and wanting to address this themselves?
1: Sure. Certainly, hindsight is twenty twenty, and yeah. I, I definitely would have used business case scenarios more in training instead of just talking about the policy and all mm. of because we have a very procedurally heavy policy now mm. that basically built around the issues that we had. Now we've seen thousands and thousands of transactions. We understand which ones are problematic. We use those as examples during training. And then we also use the kind of epic ethics failure cases like Wells Fargo, mm-hmm. Volkswagen. We'll use those to really get employees to understand what could happen because we do have a lot of new employees that weren't here when we had the problem, the problem yeah. that we had. So we're trying to make sure that they understand that this is a real risk for the company. Once you're on the radar, you're probably on the radar for life. And yeah. so we just want to make sure that this continues to be a priority for everyone. I did get to meet with the Siemens chief compliance officer on one of my trips to Germany. And he gave me some real insights into how Siemens dealt Mm -hmm. with their regulatory challenge, their FCPA compliance challenge. And really it, it almost broke up the company. Mm. So I will often use some of the real issues that they faced and how they addressed them. And some of the things that the regulators were thinking about imposing on the company. And I think Mm -hmm. those are scary and impactful. So those are some of the things we do today, but again, not in any way saying that this is something we were focused on when we were in it. We were just trying to make sure everyone understood the rules, but now we're trying to get them to understand what kinds of business activities can really present these kinds of risks Mm -hmm. that they understand. When they get into a gray area, they should at least ask some questions or, you know, Seek guidance from compliance because if they come to us early, we can often find a way to restructure what they're trying to do or rework it. They can still meet the objective that they're trying to meet, but it's just taking compliance into consideration.
0: So fantastic, and I'd love to share leveraging off your thoughts. You've really triggered some for me. These are a couple of ideas that I'm I've put in my book draft for my book that. Uh, hopefully will be coming out at some stage in the short to to medium term about how to level up your compliance program. And you mentioned speaking to the gentleman at Siemens and something that a friend of mine, Kevin, who works in the automotive industry in the UK, he brings in compliance officers from other companies to talk with and share about their compliance program so that your Stakeholders in your company like, oh, actually, it's not just us that are doing all these things or this is what other companies are doing. So getting in other compliance voices to come in and speak and share their experiences can be a great way to do things. And there are a lot of fantastic public speakers out there in compliance. But unfortunately, sometimes the speaker fees can be prohibitive if you're um, watching the pennies and you've got a bit of a budget going on. So getting a friend in can be a good way to change up the voice instead of just always hearing out our voices and our executives bringing in compliance voices from other companies and trading with your friends. And an idea that one of my team members, Jasper, thought about, which I thought was awesome, was a way to level up on presenting scenarios to our colleagues. So an activity that we've implemented recently in a culture of integrity workshop has been taking a, a big deal kind of a case that maybe not everybody knows about outside of the compliance world and issuing the facts to your audience and then saying, okay, now if you were the chief compliance officer in this position, or if you were the CEO and you've decided you want to issue a public statement, what are some of the things that you might say in that? And then sharing The what actually happened and the fluff up and getting the audience to think about best practices, but also hear about the juiciness of the compliance disaster is something that we've worked on as well.
1: Absolutely. We were actually fortunate to have the plaintiff's lawyer for Volkswagen come in a couple of years ago and talk to us about the case. He raised a lot of really interesting, just Issues that were uncovered in the investigation. And the main one that was scary to me was just how many employees knew mm. what the company was doing intentionally and mm-hmm. didn't raise it. It was just, there were a lot of engineers and not just from Volkswagen, but also some of their subcontractors that were involved in the clean diesel design and how to get it through testing, air quality testing. So it was really fascinating. And of course, I took copious notes during that. And (laughs) I do share that with our employees. We try to be a little bit careful because we are are working in the auto industry now, and we're certainly not throwing darts at anyone or anything like that, because I think it can happen at any company if you just, you have to be so careful. And again, that's why I think culture is where the focus mm. needs to be because mm. if employees don't, if they see something mm. odd and they're like, I'm not sure, that's something that can fester for years, which is mm. what was proven out in that case. And if they could have addressed it early, would it have been that big of an impact to their business? Probably not. Yeah. Super interesting. Yep. <laughs> business cases are
0: definitely very interesting to the employees. Awesome. Oh, great. Thanks for sharing that. Your Volkswagen is a great one because they have been on the speaking circuit about their case so that they're probably going to say yes to, to speaking about it with your audience. Exactly. My final question for you today, Deb, is what's a compliance program KPI that you really value that helps you stay confident that you and your team are on the right track?
1: <laughs> I love that one. As they say, Mary, not all metrics that can be measured matter. and not all metrics that matter can be easily measured. So we'll start with that. I think as your ethics and compliance program matures, it becomes easier to track and report on the metrics Mm. that matter. So if you're in early stage, I think you focus on things like policy certification and training completion, Mm. mainly because the compliance function usually owns and tracks these items readily available. But there are a few... KPIs that I value for ensuring that our program is progressing in line with the needs and risk profile of our business. It has certainly changed over time. As I mentioned, we're getting into other industries, so our team has to run to keep up with the business and who our partners are in those areas. But the first metric relates to ethics allegations or investigation trends. Contrary to other risk metrics, a decrease in this area is not necessarily something that gives me comfort, as I'm sure Mm -hmm. you feel the Mm -hmm. same way. It often points to an opportunity to improve awareness of Mm -hmm. our speak up philosophy and our reporting channel. And then the second metric that matters to me is what we refer to as compliance performance. So we are tracking the number and type of out of policy transactions that we encounter. So we review things monthly and we do track out of policy transactions. When the volume in this area is trending downward, I'm encouraged. And I feel like our education and Awareness programs are operating effectively. If we see a spike in this metric, then we know we need to double click to understand the cause and to focus more training or outreach in these areas. And then the last item that I would mention is not necessarily a program KPI, but I think it's worth mentioning. We do have a third party assessment of our program every three years. This evaluation gives us the benefit of an objective expert opinion on the areas of the program where we may require. additional focus and also the areas where we benchmark pretty well against our peers. Our program is also assessed by our internal audit function every other year. And from my perspective, I think the third-party program feedback is invaluable in helping me to
0: continue to mature the program. Thank you so much, Deb. That is awesome food for thought. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. So thank you so much for joining us and thanks for your contributions to the compliance community.
1: Thanks, Mary. It was great to speak with you. I appreciate it. (laughs) Thank you
0: so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.